0: Well, I'm of the pessimistic marriage generation. What I mean by that is, growing up, I was just about the only person in my friend group whose parents were still married. Um, It was very common for divorces to happen. It was very common for ugly divorces to happen. We live in a world where where divorces are a major problem in society, continue to be a problem in society. Um, I'm not usually this kind of guy who you know, wants to sound like a politician and harp on traditional family values and the decline of the American lifestyle. Um, but the data is pretty amazing. Where you have unhealthy marriage relationships, which we might more generally just define as committed relationships, um, where two people are in a long-term committed relationship to one another, where these relationships decline, you have a fundamental threat posed to the common good of society, to the community of humanity. So the data is clear. Bad marriage, poor marriage, failing, crumbling marriage is one of the biggest factors in poverty and the economic situation of a given location. Um, juvenile delinquency, um, whether it Youth are able to say in and out of the criminal system. Um, Drugs and drug usage, educational performance, and even, I found it surprising, health. In in areas where sociologists study where there's lower divorce rates and healthier marriages, you have better health among the general population. You have less chronic diseases. You have less emergency problems and diseases. Um, And then as a pastor... Um, growing up, I um, saw all these marriages fail around me, right? And so I'm an officially a millennial, and we're sometimes just on because we don't believe in marriage, and we wait really long to get married. And the response is always like, we saw y'all's marriages, right? They were awful. Y'all were really bad at it. So I don't know why you're confused that we're waiting a little bit longer to go into this big commitment, Um, But but growing up with that context and then becoming a pastor when I was 20 years old, which gave me a window into marriages that most 20-year-olds don't have, which is that marriage is difficult and marriage is hard. And there's a reason the statistics are so high that marriages fail. But yet, marriage is this good gift from God Marriage is this thing that's almost inherently built inside of humanity that we run towards, these long-term committed relationships. And marriage is something Jesus has a lot to say about. And marriage is something that the church has done a poor job responding to in terms of what Jesus says about it. And so if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. We continue on in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus now addresses his attention towards the topic of divorce. Apparently not a new problem, not just a modern problem. Jesus has talked about lust. He now talks about divorce. He'll next talk about oaths, um, honesty. I think all of these things play a role together, right? If you can control your lustful desires, um, your marriage probably is a lot healthier and then Um, Honesty plays into a healthy marriage as well. I think the church, though, desperately needs to be a movement for restoration in terms of healthy marriages, healthy, long term committed marriages. And churches have done one of two things typically. We've taken people who have not done marriage particularly well, or experienced a poor marriage, have a divorce, et cetera, et cetera, and we have shamed them and ostracized them. And, and, and kicked them out and shunned them and excluded them from the community and acted like grace was not at the heart of our entire faith and message. Or we have taken on perhaps equally sinister stance of who are we to judge? Who are we to take seriously the teachings that we find in the scriptures? Who are we to take seriously some really clear, direct things that Jesus tells us? about certain actions and lifestyles and things of that manner. And so we come to the issue of divorce this morning, and we read Jesus say this. Pick it up in chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, so you got thesis, antithesis. This is your traditional righteousness. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, some background for you. This is the law that Moses gave the people of Israel, Um, It is a law that was meant to protect women at the time. Um, At the time, marriage was seen as a property uh, exchange, and so a man owned a woman. A woman actually couldn't divorce a man. A man could get rid of, throw away a woman. Um, And so to protect women in a society, again, where it's a patriarchal system, they would be much more vulnerable by themselves. Um, Moses said, hey, look, y'all are doing this marriage thing and getting divorced. And in order to do that, you're going to need to go through some formal process. You're going to have to get a certificate. You're going to have to notify the community so that we can take care of these women and they don't go unnoticed and be vulnerable. We'll see Jesus in other passages identify the truth that this commandment that you need to give a certificate of divorce is not actually God saying you should be getting divorces. It's a concession, right? Jesus will, in another passage we'll look at, say, God originally intended for these marriages to last and to stay together. It's only because you kept getting divorced that God stepped in and said, let me try to at least help a little bit. This is not God's full intention. Traditional righteousness, you've heard it said, if you're going to divorce your wife, get a certificate. Jesus, though, says this. Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a lot of interesting things happening here. A lot of interesting things happening here. First term-wise, sexual immorality and adultery are what we've called umbrella terms. These are not specific terms. These don't refer to specific actions, It is, in a sense, cultural, right? If you would have asked people in the 1950s what is a sexually immoral thing to do, the answers would be different than what you would get today. Does that make sense? You fill that term with kind of your common cultural knowledge and and your common teaching and experiencing and background. And so when Jesus says, on the grounds of sexual morality. Um, and he talks about adultery, Um, we're not 100% sure what he's talking about, except that we're fairly sure that if we say it's just some sort of illicit sexual unfaithfulness, we're probably in the right arena. Interestingly enough, Matthew is the only time we get an exception clause to Jesus' teachings about divorce. So Jesus will talk about divorce in the book of Mark. He'll talk about divorce in the book of Luke. And if you only had the book of Mark and the book of Luke, you would imagine that Christians are prohibited from getting divorces. That it is not allowed. But you have what we call the notorious exception clause in Matthew. Twice, actually, it's in Matthew 19 as well. Where Jesus says, unless sexual immorality happens... And this immediately leads to feed into the worst characteristics of our moral reasoning, right? This is like your teenager asking, How far can I go with my girlfriend? How far is too far, right? As soon as you say, Well, there's an exception, then you go, Well, what's the exception? Um, There was actually an argument at the time that the Pharisees are likely trapping Jesus into in other discussions about marriage and divorce. Um, The question was, what is the cause of grounds for divorce that Moses gave, right? What was uh, an action considered bad enough to where I could give a certificate of divorce to my wife? And there were two schools of thought. There was a conservative school of thought, which said strictly sexual immorality. And there was another more broad, maybe just awful school of thought, which was anything displeasing was the word they would use, displeasing. And there are actual ancient texts with things written down like this. Displeasing could involve burning food. There were literally Jewish scholars at the time arguing that Moses' command here should be interpreted so broadly that if your wife was a bad cook, you're, you're okay given that certificate of divorce. And this was a pretty broad debate during Jesus' time, okay? And so when Jesus weighs in on it, he seems to definitely lean to one side, right? To this closer uh, reasoning, this sexual immorality reasoning. Also interesting, many people think that sexual immorality here might actually be referring to premarital um, intercourse, which is something interesting because we tell kids, don't have sex before you get married, there's no Bible verse that says those words exactly. This might, though, be the only passage that really refers to that explicitly because the most common practice of getting a divorce for sexual morality is what happened with Mary and Joseph. Do you remember this story? They're betrothed, so they're kind of basically married. It was working differently like than it works now. And Joseph finds out she's pregnant, has been sexually immoral, And so he goes to divorce her. Some wonder, actually, if that's why this exception clause is in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is the only gospel that includes that detail of the story, that this was something that actually affected Jesus' mother and father, this this debate over whether divorce is allowed in this situation or that situation. Jesus says, though, um, if you... um, get a divorce. He gives the exclusion, except on the ground of sexual morality. You have made her commit adultery. Again, see the patriarchal background here. A man, according to Jewish tradition, can't commit adultery because he owns the woman, right? Uh, Only a woman can commit adultery, Um, and so he makes her commit adultery. And then whoever marries a divorced woman then commits adultery. So watch what happens to the idea of remarriage, according to the logic of this passage as well, right? You can get a divorce based on how you describe and define sexual morality, but then that woman cannot be remarried. If she's remarried, God counts this as adultery, a punishable offense by death, according to the Old Testament Scriptures. Also, a man cannot get remarried unless it's to a woman who has not already been divorced. Do you kind of see how you can work through the logic here of these kind of like rules of how marriage and divorce and remarriage might work together? The, the logic seems to be, and Jesus will say this again elsewhere, that when people get married, God joins them together in his eyes. And just because you get a certificate doesn't mean it's necessarily separated, right? And so you might have this certificate of divorce, um, but then when that woman marries another man, in God's eyes, right, they're still united to the original partner, and so these acts of adultery are happening. Now, I want you to notice this. I have made an argument that through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to find triads. We're going to find three uh, structures of three where Jesus will give a traditional righteousness. He'll identify a vicious cycle, and he'll give us a transforming initiative, a way that we can slowly but surely walk out of these cycles that um, hinder human flourishing. This is the clear exception to the rule. Jesus seemingly does not give us any sort of actions to get out of this. We get the command, right? Traditional piety, don't divorce except for sexual morality. We see the vicious cycle, right? He says, because if you do, you create these adulterous situations. And even if we didn't agree with the logic that, you know, God is counting it as sin because he's not divorced you in his mind, even though the court has, we can still understand the vicious cycle that happens when divorce takes place just in families and communities, right? Again, humans don't seem to flourish when these long term relationships break down um, the way that they so often do. But we have no transformative initiative. If, though, we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we actually do get a teaching from Jesus that seems to fit into what we would expect for that third part here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're kind of left out of this transforming initiative, but in the Bible itself, the Holy Spirit does not leave us out. What are the practices that we can do to get out of this vicious cycle of divorce and adultery? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. They've got lots of questions for him. Um, We have to remember 1 Corinthians is chronologically the earliest um, letter we have um, in terms of divorce. He talks about divorce and remarriage here. So this is the first time a Christian is writing about divorce and remarriage. This is written before the Gospels. Um, And he's responding to questions like this. Should married couples refrain from having sex for reasons of holiness? Paul says, no, you're welcome. Um, He is um, reflecting pastorally on Jesus' traditions and teachings, and we'll pick it up in uh, chapter 7, verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Do you catch what he said there in the parentheses? He's saying, to married people I'm giving you a command, but it's not my command, it's Jesus' command. Paul, as an authoritative pastor, who, by the way, had some authority, right? Guy's handkerchief falls off, people get healed. He writes letters, churches move, theology changes. Rarely goes out of his way to tell somebody, this is not my sentence. This is Jesus' sentence. And yet he does so here, and we take it seriously. Immediately afterwards, he'll tell us for a different opinion, look, this is not Jesus' teaching, this is my own opinion. So you can maybe take it or leave it. Here, though, either he's aware of a teaching of Jesus that's not recorded for us, or he has learned this from Jesus himself. He says, To thee, married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else, what are the words? Be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Just like we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the movement is towards reconciliation. Jesus does not expect perfection. Jesus doesn't come and say, don't lust. Jesus doesn't come and say, don't be angry. Jesus doesn't come and say, don't experience marital problems that create these situations and environments of divorce and adultery. What he does say is that you can make steps to walk into the kingdom of God And in a married relationship, these steps look like reconciliation. And if if you're married, if you know married people, you know it's difficult. And if you are divorced or a widow or remarried or in a failing marriage, Jesus' command to you is to walk towards reconciliation. It can be big steps. It can be small steps. It could be an apology this afternoon. It could be a compliment. It could be just not saying something when it comes to your mind. Jesus, says, to the married people, I give this charge do not separate from your husband. If you do, don't get married again or else be reconciled. Take that relationship and work towards reconciliation with it. The husband should not divorce his wife. Now, there's so many things that we can still and still need to talk about when it comes to issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage. These scriptures have lots to say about this. Paul will actually say right before this to unmarried people and to widows, he tells them to remain single. Um, If we keep reading, he says, to the rest I say, and he says, I hear, not the Lord. Paul saying, Luke. This is not Jesus. Exactly. This is just my pastoral opinion. If a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be in such cases. The brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Lots of interesting things happening here. One, this would have been a real problem in the first century. If one spouse would have converted and put their allegiance in King Jesus and the other spouse did not. Because religion back then was not just a matter of private thought, the way that perhaps two couples can get married in different religions, and it never really even come up in conversation. In Corinth, you would go to the temple and engage in ritual, religious, sexual practices. You would go to the marketplace and offer idols, Your basic lifestyle and community was built around practices outlawed to people who claim to follow Christ. And so to be in a relationship, a marriage relationship, where one has said, I am following Jesus, and the other has said, my entire life revolves around pretty much everything that stands antithetical to what you now believe and desire for your life, is going to be a tense situation, to say the least. You think you have problems in your marriage. could be worse. And it's interesting that Paul says here, stay together with them. Stay together with them. I think it tells us, one, about God's ultimate desire in relationships. Again, that they not be broken, that reconciliation be found. I think, two, you have here an interesting example where Paul employs this conception of contagious holiness that we find in the Gospels. I've talked about this before. Jesus touches the leper. He does not get leprosy. The leper is healed. Jesus touches someone unclean. He does not become unclean. The unclean person becomes clean. Purity, impurity, sin, holiness reverses with Jesus. His holiness is contagious in a sense. One author uh, commenting on this passage put, apparently in relationships where one spouse is a devoted Christian and one is not, and even perhaps engaged in actively anti-Christian activities, Paul is expecting the Christian holiness to be a version of a spiritual STD. It will eventually pass on. He says, how do you know that you won't infect your husband or your wife? Don't be so concerned about temptation. Don't be so concerned about the Spirit not being able to hold you and give you strength and encouragement, and about the body of Christ not being able to come around you. Trust that your holiness, God's love, is more powerful than the darkness around you, and even in a relationship that you might be in. Now, flip with me, please, to Mark chapter 10. There's still more to say, I think, about marriage. In Matthew 5, we get that exception clause. We're missing the transformative initiative. I think you can find it in Scripture, though, which is to be reconciled. In Mark chapter 10, we get what I think is actually the most important statement from Jesus on marriage. We pick it up in verse 2. And Jesus says this. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses say? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. We've seen this. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. Do You see the pretty blunt straightforwardness of that last sentence. What God has joined together. Let not man separate. There's no exception clause here. There's no unless this happens or unless this happens. In the house, the disciples ask him again about this matter. They do this in Mark. They hear some crazy, Jesus says. They pull him aside later and like, okay, can you explain that to us? And he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Again, he involves this vicious cycle of adultery. Again, he subverts the Jewish tradition. A husband is now committing adultery against her. Again, he seems to be ruling out certain remarriages. The Scriptures speak actually with different voices when it comes to marriage, when it comes to remarriage, when it comes to divorce. And in real human life, in real human communities, we experience pain and confusion around not only these passages, but how we interpret them, how we preach them, how we practice them among one another. And there are some important things that we can say. There's some important things that we can conclude despite some differences that we find in the Scriptures. And it's also important that we include, when we talk about these long-term committed relationships, people who are single, people who are celibate. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, we don't actually mention it, actually says a Christian should be celibate, should be single. He says that's a better idea than for you to get married. He gives an exception clause, which is unless you burn with desire. Here's what's funny about it. Everyone hits puberty, and they go, yeah, that's me. I need to get married. But can we step back historically and and, and think if... The Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of our faith, said Christians should not be getting married except for a few who really just can't control themselves. It's an embarrassment type of thing. And yet we've all said, okay, that's all of us. We're good to go. Let's get married. That we've probably misread the passage. Can we probably say that when, when you've got a pastor who is 35, 40, 45 years old and is not married and can't get a job because he's not married and there's some stigma around it or some um, rumored sexual questions about alternative sexualities or perversions. You're probably say we've misread the passage. We've misread the intent. We think of singleness as such an impossibility in our world because of our need for community and fellowship, because of the loneliness that destroys human life. But when Paul is talking about marriage, remarriage, divorce, reconciliation, singleness, he's imagining something we emphasize a lot here, that there's a thing that exists called the church. And it might be possible for someone to be celibate and single if they had a committed relationship with the body of believers. It might be possible For marriages to be more faithful, to work through more issues, to not crumble as fast and get thrown the towel as quickly, if there was a group of believers that truly knew each other, that truly talked to each other, that truly confessed to each other, that truly encouraged each other. And so, yes, while there seems to be this built in blueprint in creation for, 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 Man and woman to, to come together for, for people to long for these, again, long-term, faithful relationships. Um, there is much diversity in the Scriptures. And they center around a few key things. One is the centrality and beauty of the church when functioning properly. Two is the constant call for reconciliation. So no matter where we are today, if we're single, if we're a widow... If we're married, if our marriage is good, if our marriage is awful, if we're divorced, if we're remarried, we're all called to take a step towards peacemaking, to take a step towards reconciliation, to take a step towards faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus. But we have to be honest: in the scriptures, there are deep unity. There is deep unity about certain things about marriage, and there's also some bewildering diversity in terms of is it allowed, is it not allowed, what's going on here. The Scriptures all affirm as one that marriage is a permanently binding commitment in the eyes of God. It's important to acknowledge that all divorce talk in the Scriptures is a matter of exception, of tragic concession to the normative vision that God has. Um, This is not a, a way to shame those who have had a divorce, this is a way, though, for a church to, to stand true to Scripture and say, if you're considering a divorce, let's, let's really try to work on reconciliation. No matter how difficult, no matter how awful, no matter how poor. It's not that it can't ever happen. It's not that if it happens, so we can't love you and we're going to shame you and you've made some horrible, horrible mistake and now you're the worst Christian that's ever lived. It's that in whatever situation you're in right now, you've got to realize that's not where God's life is truly found for you. And, and if we, you can, if we can, as a community we want to work towards reconciliation. And yet there's lots of differences. Matthew and Luke assume that only a husbands can divorce. Mark and Paul assume that the wife has the right to divorce as well. Mark and Luke assume that there's no reason anyone can get divorced. There's no exception clause. Matthew has an exception clause. Paul seems to also have an understanding that divorce separation might happen. When it comes to remarriage, Luke excludes it altogether because of his prohibition. Matthew thinks divorced women can't remarry without committing adultery, but leaves the door open for men to remarry as long as their new wives haven't been married. Paul advises against remarriage for everyone, but he doesn't want you to get married in the first place. Again, Mark doesn't even think about the problem of remarriage because it's so prohibited to get divorced. There's unity and there's diversity. And after study and prayer, I I came to a, a handful of conclusions that I think we can say about the canon of Scripture, about marriage, about divorce, but I think get to the truth of the heart of what Jesus is teaching, what the scriptures teach, what God's original intentions are in creation. I think two of our, our biggest problems with marriage are one, that we see marriage individually. So marriage is something between me and my spouse. And we don't recognize that our marriages affect the community. The stats play this out, right? Your marriages affect poverty levels, crime levels, health issues. Think about the body of Christ. The health of your marriage affects the examples our little ones get. The health of your marriage will affect the ability of you to encourage a young couple who's struggling in their marriage. Just like with everything in our lives, our actions affect more than just us. And when we think of marriage as just our own thing to deal with, I think we are misthinking. The second big problem is, and this is obvious and cliche, but has to be said over and over because we still haven't figured it out, marriage is not the Hollywood romantic fulfillment of all of our desires. There's no one person out there that will make you happy for the rest of your life. And largely, the culture of narcissistic divorce and remarriage, the cycle that we have, is a result of thinking we'll find a person who's exactly like what we need. They fit my needs, they do what I want, they don't annoy me, they don't cause me to change. They marry, it's not that person. get remarried, it's not that person. They get remarried, it's not that person. These are two fundamental mistakes. Here are some conclusions that I, I have drawn out of to share with you. Like Paul would say, These are for myself and not the Lord. Marriage, long-term committed sexual relationships are an aspect of discipleship that should reflect the faithfulness of God. One of the most important things that was ever said to me was by Chris Henderson. I was a little boy. I don't know what we were talking about. It wasn't about this. It was out of nowhere, but I'll never forget it. He said, marriage is not about you being happy. He said, it's about you being holy. And I was like, what are you talking about? Stop, we're playing video games. But it it stuck. Marriage is the discipleship tool. This is, I think, how we might be able to have a conversation with Paul about why we get married so often. When Paul thought we'd be better kingdom citizens if we didn't have to worry about protecting and taking care of a spouse. We might say, well, there is important work that's done in marriage. Being married reveals how selfish I am, how stubborn I am, how many blind spots I have, how I talk a bigger game than I I practice. And, And in theory, in beauty, marriage makes you more like Jesus. Marriage makes you more humble. Marriage makes you more of a servant. Marriage is a tool of discipleship. Marriage is a covenantal relationship, not a recreational relationship, not a transactional relationship where you're expecting to get something. It's a covenantal relationship and divorce is contrary to God's will. Marriage is grounded not in feelings of love, but in acts of love. There are occasions when one partner has so deeply wronged the other that the marriage cannot continue. I just don't think we can read the whole canon of Scripture and say that that cannot be said. Again, I would want to emphasize, this is not the normative vision. This is a tragic concession, but we live in a world that's broken and fallen. Sometimes relationships fall and break. But the church needs to be a place that loves and supports and gathers around those who have been in a relationship that for whatever reason was not able to continue. The church needs to be able to say both that commitment and reconciliation is God's desire for your life, but also no matter where you are, no matter what happened to you, we can move forward together with the grace of Jesus. Remarriage after divorce cannot be excluded as a possibility. Again, I just don't think you can incorporate all of the texts and scriptures and say that. And lastly, the community of the church must seek to find ways, must work hard to cultivate deep and satisfying relationships for those who are single, widowed, divorced and not remarried, and for those who are married, for their relationships to be strengthened. Paul says that marriage is this picture of the gospel, two people serving one another, laying down their lives for one another. It's a serious issue for Jesus. It's a serious issue in the Scriptures. It's an issue that should ultimately cause us to appreciate and recognize and worship the grace that we have received through Jesus. It should be a relationship and a conversation that reminds us about the story that we find ourselves in of a triune God who created the world and who has loved us so deeply that he sent his son to die for us, to resurrect, to be our king, to send his spirit, to ensure that we are um, able to, to, to go all the way into the inheritance, into eternal life, into new creation. And so this morning, even as we talk about some things that perhaps are some confusing, perhaps are are painful, I think we, we do it only correctly if we are ultimately reminded about the gospel. If we're ultimately reminded about our relationship with Jesus because of his love for us. And the reminder that all of our relationships and actions, our words and our prayers, should be an imitation of that love. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for um, the um, way that you built us to be social human beings and the way that that it can be fulfilled through marriage and the way that that can be fulfilled through communities and friendships. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to walk out of these vicious cycles that when, when the world would see a Christian community, they'd see a community that acts differently than the rest of the world. When it comes to tensions, when it comes to unfaithfulness, and when it comes to problems in marriage, and, and when it comes to dealing with people who have made mistakes or people who feel shame over things that they've done, Father, I pray that we would be an alternative society that embodies your grace, that even our varied love would be a witness to your work in the world. I pray that you would use us not only as you grow us, but that we might be able to grow those around us to know and experience and enjoy your love for them as well. We thank you for your grace. In the name of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son that we pray. Amen.